This is ABC's Aaron Katursky. 50 people have been charged in what federal prosecutors in Boston have called the largest college admissions cheating scandal ever prosecuted in the United States. In early 2019, federal prosecutors charged over 50 people in a criminal conspiracy to influence college admissions at elite schools across the country. The investigation was called Varsity Blues, and it swept the nation as notable celebrities such as actresses Lori Loughlin and Felicity Huffman were charged with fraud. There typically isn't a lot of news in college admissions, but this dominated the news cycle for weeks. And while so many parents and students were outraged about the power well-off parents possessed to influence the college process, something else happened in the background, and nobody heard about it. This is Students United, the flagship podcast of the Students United Reporting Network. I'm David Wolfbender. And I'm Trace Held. And today, we talk about an investigation that could change college admissions forever. October 15th, November 1st, May 1st. These dates probably don't mean anything to you. Unless you're a high school senior, then they mean everything. Today, we are going to focus on one of those dates, May 1st, sometimes called the National College Decision Day or the National Candidates Reply Date. This is the day that most colleges require high school seniors to commit to enroll in a certain college. For some students, it is the most stressful day of their high school career. Trace and I are both seniors. Every school we are applying to has a different application deadline. Some are in January, others in November or October. But every school says that you need to accept an offer of admission by May 1st. And so we started to ask the question, why? And after a bit of researching, we found the answer. And it's actually simpler than we thought. It all starts with a nonprofit called the National Association for College Admissions Counseling, or NACAC. So NACAC is basically a trade association in the college admissions business. College admissions officers, college counselors, and institutions all opt in to join. In addition to professional development and advocacy initiatives, NACAC also controls a critical aspect of admissions. It's called the Code of Ethics and Professional Practices, or the CEPP. These are essentially rules and guidelines for what colleges can and can't do in the college admissions process. These rules and regulations were put in place because NACAC's goal is to help students. You can find that on their website. NACAC is an organization dedicated to serving students as they make choices about pursuing post-secondary education. That was a quote I found earlier today. So what does the Code of Ethics do? Well, it turns out a lot, but we are going to focus on three main provisions. The first one is the May 1st deadline. The May 1st deadline really isn't that complicated. All colleges use it as the national response date, the date at which all students must contractually inform everyone which institution they will attend. And collectively, under the NACAC Code of Ethics, colleges agreed that after this date, they will stop marketing towards these students. So what this meant was that, for example, if I accepted an offer from University A and said that I was going to go there, University B could not try and poach me from University A. Based off of David's hypothetical, they wouldn't be able to offer David any additional scholarships, money, or any other incentives to make him change his mind. If at any point during the admissions process, I decided I wanted to go to University A, University B had to step back. They couldn't try and poach me. Once I decide where I want to go, it's final. End of story. But there were a few exceptions, but it mainly had to do with a college's wait list. The second provision is another controversial topic in college admissions. And to have this conversation, we first need to discuss a little bit more about how college admission works. Many schools have two different ways of applying. Binding and non-binding. Some schools have a process called early decision. 
In this method, students and their parents sign a contract, a binding contract. And that contract says that if the student gets in, they are for sure going to that college. Students even have to agree to withdraw applications from other schools. And to be clear, those who apply early decision have to go no matter what financial aid offer they get. They are bound to go to that college if they get in. Those who apply early decision typically have a slightly better chance of getting into college. For example, Northwestern University outside Chicago takes half of their students from early decision. The acceptance rate among early decision admits is typically higher than that of regular decision. Nevertheless, the early decision process is a problem for some people, and it has to do a lot with the cost of college. Tonight, World News is back with a wake-up call for your wallet. We were stunned to see this number today. Over the past 30 years, college tuition and fees have skyrocketed. Look at that, 570%. Yes, you heard that right. ABC News reported in 2013 that college costs went up 570% over the last 30 years. And since then, it's only gotten worse. This is one of the reasons people hate early decision. If you get into your early decision school, you are contractually obligated to attend no matter your financial aid. This is why so many students feel that it is important to review and examine all of their financial planning options when attending college, because it is expensive and college loans can be destructive. To put it into perspective, Forbes reported in 2018 that Americans now owe over $1.5 trillion in student loans. My name is Jim Jump. I am the academic dean and the director of college counseling at St. Christopher School, which is a boys' independent school in Richmond, Virginia. Jim Jump is a current independent school college counselor, but he's also the former president of NACAC. Here he is explaining the negatives of applying early decision. Historically, one of the arguments against applying early decision was that if you are a student who needs financial aid, and needs to be able to compare financial aid offers, early decision is not a good route for you to go. So if you want to be able to review your financial options, early decision is just not for you. Early decision is for the people who either know what their financial aid will be or simply do not care about their financial aid at all. It's always been felt that early decision benefits kids who are from wealthy households and wealthy schools. The thinking goes, if you are so wealthy that the cost of college is not important to you, then applying early decision is perfect. You know you won't receive any, or at best little, financial aid, so it is to your benefit to apply during the time that gives you the best opportunity to get into college. So you'd get into school earlier. That's great. But for the last few decades, there have been no other incentives offered to students who apply early decision. Why? Well, the NACAC Code of Ethics. Here is Eric Hoover, a journalist with the Chronicle of Higher Education. He has covered college admissions since 2001, and he reported extensively on the NACAC situation throughout this process. In a nutshell, the association's ethics code prohibited member colleges from offering special incentives like preferred housing on campus or better financial aid offers. Here is what the Code of Ethics states. Colleges must not offer incentives exclusive to students applying or admitted under any early decision application plan. You know, you're not supposed to, oh, if you apply early decision, you get better housing or you get a better parking space. Other examples of incentives include financial aid packages and scholarships specifically and exclusively for early decision applicants. So as Mr. Jump said, 
Colleges also couldn't give out priority housing or other incentives that would give an advantage to early decision applicants beyond a better acceptance rate. Essentially, NACAC was saying that students deserve the right to apply regular decision without being punished, because some students need to review their financial options. The third provision had to do with poaching transfer students. Every high school senior knows and understands the pain of getting potentially hundreds of emails a week from potential colleges and universities they are interested in. But once May 1st hits, after a student has already committed to a college, those emails are supposed to stop. So here's a hypothetical. On May 1st, a fictitious student, who we're going to call John, commits to University A. And in the fall, he goes to University A. What the NACAC Code of Ethics provision says is that colleges cannot solicit transfer applications from their previous application pool. So continuing our hypothetical, when John was in his senior year of high school, he applied to three schools, University A, College B, and University C. Of course, as we said earlier, he chose University A. This provision restricts College B and University C from trying to convince John to apply to their school as a transfer student after he is safely nested at University A. In other words, those annoying college emails that seniors hate to get can't continue once they are nested at a college in the fall. No other school can try and poach students for transfer admission. Of course, as was true with the other provisions, there were some exceptions. For example, if a student was interested in transferring schools, they could initiate the inquiry themselves. So we are back to John and our hypothetical. Let's say that John didn't really love University A after a few weeks. He could contact College B and say he was interested in transferring. And then, of course, College B would be allowed to start soliciting applications from him. Both the anti-incentive and the anti-poaching provisions were an important part of the NACAT Code of Ethics. But now, they're suddenly gone. So why? For some reason or another, the Department of Justice took a great interest in the ethical code called the Code of Ethics. That was Eric Hoover again. And as it turns out, it was the Department of Justice. Yes, the United States government's Department of Justice. The concern was that the association's Code of Ethics was violating Section 1 of the Sherman Antitrust Act. So the Department of Justice started an investigation into NACAC's Code of Ethics. And that investigation was based on a potential violation of the Sherman Act. Yes, the Sherman Act, the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. You might remember it from your history classes. It's a federal statute that prohibits agreements that unreasonably restrain competition. That was Jeff Miles, a lawyer with decades of experience in antitrust law. He worked in the Department of Justice's Antitrust Division years ago and is currently employed in the private sector. Most importantly to this story, he was NACAC's lawyer during the Department of Justice's investigation. The Sherman Act prohibits anti-competitive agreements, and it was the Department of Justice's view that the Code of Ethics was just that, an anti-competitive agreement. The Department of Justice's investigation ran for over a year, and for a long time, its outcome remained blurred. The DOJ wanted these provisions removed, and NACAC obviously wanted to defend their Code of Ethics. NACAC's lawyers met with the DOJ's investigators to try to find a reasonable solution, and NACAC defended their code of ethics for the investigation. And then one day, it was suddenly over, and the DOJ won. NACAC gave in, voluntarily. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. 
Let's first talk about why so many people in college admissions thought these provisions were important. People who have long worked in college admissions would say, generally, oh gosh, this code is harmless. Um, it is not evidence that we are all colluding, that is acting um, to limit competition among consumers. In this case, that means applicants. That is how Eric Hoover assumed somebody in college admissions would respond to the DOJ's position. But we wanted to know what someone in college admissions would actually think. So we reached out to two people who have strong feelings about the DOJ's opinion. My name is Emmy Harward. I serve as executive director of the Association of College Counselors in Independent Schools. The Association for College Counselors in Independent Schools, or AXIS, is similar to NACAC, except their membership is unique to independent schools, and they really don't have a code of ethics themselves. But they aren't competitors. AXIS and NACAC have similar goals. They want to support students. Just weeks before we talked to Emmy Harward, AXIS's executive director, the Department of Justice put out a statement. On the press release was a quote from Rakan Del Rahim, who was the assistant attorney general of the DOJ's antitrust division. He said that the settlement with NACAC is, quote, a victory for all college applicants and students across the United States who will benefit from vigorous competition among colleges for their enrollment, end quote. Here is how Emmy Harward responded to that. It seemed to present the college admissions profession and process and field as if we're talking about Coke and Pepsi or Apple and Android or, you know, two competing uh, big for-profit entities. Uh, you know, nonprofit organizations are not seeking to make money on the backs of, you know, 18 to 25-year-olds and, and their families. We should note that Emmy Harward disclosed to us in the interview that she had a role in forming part of NACAC's Code of Ethics, and therefore she is a strong supporter. It's also important that we note that we reached out to both the Department of Justice and NACAC's Communication Department multiple times for comment. Neither chose to respond. The bottom line here is that most college admissions professionals believe that these regulations help students. The goal was really to have some protections for students as they go through the process. So. I, I think that statement really gets to the core of the main disagreement. So that was the main disagreement, and it wasn't only Emmy Harvard who felt that way. If colleges end up competing unreasonably against each other and just th throwing offers at students, I, I think it may not lead to great decisions. This is Jim Jump again. In our interview, we asked him about how other people in college admissions feel about this new change. I think people are afraid that it'll bring out the worst impulses in colleges as businesses to compete against each other and to put undue pressure on students. Many, Jim Jump among them, feel that it will bring out the worst in colleges. That remains to be seen. But clearly, those in college admissions overwhelmingly believe that the code of ethics was critically important. They believe in the code of ethics, but it didn't seem to matter. As we said earlier, NACAC gave in. They agreed to remove the provisions. But to do that, it would require a vote from the NACAC assembly. And it all went down in Louisville, Kentucky. Now is your chance to register for the 75th NACAC National Conference in Louisville, Kentucky. Yes, the NACAC National Conference, September 2019, Louisville, Kentucky over 6,000 attendees. At the conference, the NACAC National Assembly met. The biggest item on the agenda, the removal of three code of ethics provisions. The same three provisions we just talked about, 
in the same three the DOJ wanted to cut. To do this, the Assembly, filled with overwhelming supporters of the code, would need to pass a majority vote to get rid of these provisions. And the vote was 211 to 3 in favor of removing them. You heard that right. We thought the same thing. How is this possible? How can so many assembly members who support the Code of Ethics, even some who had a part in crafting it, vote to get rid of these provisions by a landslide? As it turns out, somebody talked to them before the vote. And ironically, it was one of the guys you heard from earlier, Jeff Miles, NACAC's lawyer. I've talked to several NACAC groups, not only the assembly, but a number of the NACAC committees. So Jeff Miles, NACAC's lawyer, was the one who was talking to a lot of different people and groups at NACAC. So if you're like us, you're wondering what he could possibly say to change their minds. By the time we agreed to settle the matter, the investigation was only about half over. And by that time, NACAC's legal bills were in the high six figures. So Jeff Miles told the NACAC assembly that the organization's legal fees were exceptionally high. Quick side note here, he didn't get specific with the number, but good news is, he didn't need to. We know the number. It's public information. NACAC is a nonprofit, and on their 990 tax form filed in December of 2018, it says exactly how much they paid to Miles' firm. That year, they paid Miles' firm $722,000 in legal fees. Nonprofits are only required to report the top five companies they paid for services each year, so we don't know how much NACAC paid in legal expenses in 2017. But we do know that it was at least below their fifth highest paid firm, which was $190,000. The $722,000 figure may not sound like a ton of money, but NACAC isn't as large as you think. Their 2018 revenue was only $17 million. And if you take into account that they need to pay their 68 employees a living wage in Northern Virginia, money starts to become kind of tight. 14 of those 68 employees made over $100,000 in 2018. And overall, NACAC reported $7 million worth of salary expenses that year. So there was a sharp increase in legal fees. And if the investigation continued, those fees would have skyrocketed even more. And Jeff Miles told the Assembly that before they voted. Emmy Harward backed him up. For a nonprofit membership organization, it wasn't financially sustainable. So to put it bluntly, continuing the investigation could have had significant consequences. The biggest consequence there may have not even been a NACAC anymore. It was clear that if the investigation continued and then we actually litigated the matter, the cost was going to be astronomical, probably a, probably a cost that NACAC could not bear. The fact that the organization could fall because of high legal fees was one reason that NACAC was so insistent on ending the investigation and inquiry with the DOJ. But there was something else, and it had to do with people's time. Another problem was that the investigation was taking a substantial amount of NACAC employee time. The day-to-day -day work that NACAC does was not getting done. So it was creating difficulty for NACAC to do what NACAC does. People were being deposed, they had to prepare documents, there was just a lot of work to be done. Who was one of the people who had to spend that time? Emmy Harward. I personally had to work with NACAC attorneys and sending documents and emails and other information uh, to the DOJ for review. And remember, she doesn't even work for NACAC. The NACAC Assembly voted 211 to 3. 
the provisions are gone, and Eric Hoover tweeted about it. And one of the tweet replies was from Emmy Harward's account, and it gave a simple but powerful response. Five words. Welcome to the Wild West. She wasn't the only one to use that analogy, though. If places start to struggle and their existence is called the question and other institutions are throwing out incentives and going after students, you know, it's been described as, will we end up in the Wild West? So the provisions are gone. What does that mean? Well, some worry we are in the, to quote, Wild West. Colleges can now do all of those things we talked about earlier. They can actively recruit after the May 1st deadline, they can poach transfer students, and they can offer incentives to those who apply for early decision. The question is, will they? And there's some debate about this. What is going to happen? Here's Jim Jump. That remains to be seen. Some have suggested that the Code of Ethics could become a best practices document with no enforceability. We just don't know yet. But there is some hope among college admissions groups that the values ingrained in the Code of Ethics will continue. The principles that underlie the Code of Ethics, things like the importance of truthfulness, the importance of student-centered practices, the importance of being trustworthy, I think most college people believe in those things. And again, we don't know how it will all turn out in the end, but we do know one thing, there is one high-profile university that utilized these new rules to their advantage this year. As I understand it, High Point University in North Carolina did offer special incentives through its website uh, to students who applied for early decision. And, um, you know, those included what the university called, quote, first priority, end quote, in choosing their housing. Yes, High Point University in North Carolina started offering incentives for those who applied early decision. Priority parking, priority housing, priority class selection, and an early move-in day, all if you apply early decision. So the question is whether or not colleges will choose to uphold their ethical past, or will they do what High Point did and alter their motives? If so, all I can say is, on behalf of everybody here at Students United, welcome to the Wild West. Reporting for Students United from Indianapolis, Indiana, I'm David Wolf Bender. And I'm Trace Held. Thank you for listening. Hey, you know that awesome music that played at the beginning of this podcast? Well, it's generously provided by Joseph McDade. He's an outstanding artist who produces free-use music online. You can find him at his website at josephmcdade.com. What Pictures also provided free-use music to this podcast. You can find their channel on YouTube. And once again, thank you for listening to Students United.